Welcome to Zen Bones, ancient wisdom for modern times. This is Mark Lesser. Why Zen Bones? Our world is in crisis and ever-shifting, and now, more than ever, more wisdom, clarity, and courage are essential, especially in the world of work, business, and leadership. In today's episode, I'm here with Parker Palmer, author, educator, and activist who focuses on issues that include education, community, leadership, spirituality, and social change. He's published many best-selling books, which I've enjoyed immensely. He's the founder of the Center for Courage and Renewal. And he's been recognized with major foundation grants, several national awards, and 13 honorary doctorates. Uh, So pleased to welcome Parker. In this episode, we talk about the question of what gives you hope. And we talked about the gaps and the creative tension between what is and what is possible. And the art of perspective taking, looking at the world through others' points of view. Parker talked about his experiences in a Quaker intentional community and how that helped him learn ways to transform economic inequality. And we talked about how he rekindles hope with his walks in nature, as well as his profound experiences with depression and how that helped him give birth to some of his more hopeful books. And we talked about creating safe spaces, the art of creating safe spaces and finding your inner light as a core part of enabling social change. I hope you uh, enjoy and learn from this conversation with Parker as much as I learned and enjoyed. Thank you. This is Mark Lesser, and this is Zen Bones, Ancient Wisdom for Modern Times. And I am just really thrilled and honored to be here today with Parker Palmer, who's been a, a hero of mine in his his books and writing. Parker, welcome. Thank you, Mark. It's a great pleasure and honor to be with you. I've reread Let Your Life Speak, which I really enjoyed just as much, just as much reading the second time from, I don't know, 10, 10 years ago. And, and I think where I want to start is this question of, you know, the, the world is, the world seems to be in a pretty pretty messed up, challenging place in many, in many, many ways. And yet, and, and I wonder how are you feeling about things these days and, and, and what, and, and especially what, what gives you hope and how do you, how do you practice and bring your sense of hope and possibility into this world of ours? Well, I'm sure there are days when had you asked me that question, I'd be Mr. Doom and Gloom, because those days come, don't they, like like bad weather. But for the most part, hope hope is a notion that I work with and, and work on, and I've always seen hope as an action rather than an attitude. I've thought a lot and talked a lot and I guess tried to live the notion that we we stand and act in a tragic gap between what is and, and what should be and what could be. And our job is to keep putting one foot in front of the other. 
in that tragic gap with, with whatever role we're playing in the world. I, I, get, I hear people saying, well, it's hopeless. And my thought is, if I were to embrace that, what's left to do except sit in the corner and suck my thumb? And that seems to me not a fit way for a, a grown-up to live. So I think what gives me hope is all the good people I know, all the good work they're doing, a lot of it, you know, stimulated by the uh, apocalyptic feel of the last decade or so. Apocalypse, after all, means revelation. And a lot of people have walked into that revelation and seen possibilities that they either hadn't seen or hadn't really activated in their own lives before. So young people especially, I think there's a whole cadre of uh, the rising generation, and for me, that would, I suppose, be anybody under 45 or so. That's how it looks at age 83, as I sit here today. They, they live into what I just said about folks engaging the tragic gap and keeping on keeping on. I read the other day a wonderful quote from a woman who represents the Black liberation movement in this country, which is one of the historical streams of American history that has inspired me for a very long time, ever since I became a community organizer at age 30 in Washington, D.C. And and she was asked about hope, and she said, I know of no narrative in the Black experience in this country or elsewhere around the world that ends with the words, and then we gave up. And I take inspiration from people who've really had a much harder row to hoe than I have, literally and figuratively. And finally, I, I take inspiration from the natural world. I live in, in Wisconsin, in Madison, and we're blessed around here with lots of lakes and woods and rivers. And I get out and walk and sit and meditate and absorb, uh, even in the coldest months as much as possible, because there's a resurgence in nature that's also in us. I've seen areas that were burnt to the ground by forest fires or blown to the ground by derechos, inland tornadoes. And five, ten years later, they're back with new forms of growth, but green, fecund, and growing. So when I have the presence of mind to recollect and be present to all of that, I find hope. The, one of the words that you, you used a couple of times and you started with is the word gap. And there's the, maybe there's the, the tragic gap and there's, but there's what you're describing, I think is the gap of possibility. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I more and more, see how we live in and work in those gaps as a practice, as a core, both, this is where I think as a business person, right? Business people, everything, everything about the life of work is the gaps between what is and what you are envisioning. And I think this is also true of our personal lives or our spiritual lives or the, the, the lives of of black people or our, our democracy, Th that approach I find so just practical and useful. 
and and yet it can be it's uncomfortable right it's it's basically acknowledging discomfort that of being able to stay with and work in those gaps yeah it is and i i, I guess the reason for that discomfort is that there's something in us that always wants resolution we we always want to solve the problem rather than holding the tension and of course that's a disease that's eating away at our democracy right now because the the founding genius of this democracy for all of its flaws and all of the founders flaws the founding genius was a system that was really designed to get creative use out of tensions out of the great debate between left and right this and that right and to slowly slowly as time went on to not close that gap but to negotiate it with with you know something that somehow begins to approximate the moral arc of history as 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 Martin Luther King talked about it so for, for me mark i think the, i i like your your description of of the gap it, it is what is and it's where it's where we are and it draws us forward doesn't it that that gap it's it's if you if you're on to its possibilities if you don't turn away, if you feel the, the opening for you to move forward with life-giving creative work and activity, or in the case of, of, a, of a business person, to innovate a new product, to reach a new market, to be of greater service to the consuming public, then that gap functions to kind of in a teleological way. It's a, there's an end in there that draws you into a, a more creative future. I, I like to think of, of this and a lot of other things as a matter of choices that we have to make. And so my notion of the tragic gap is that we're always in this gap between, on the one hand, the harsh realities around us, and on the other hand, the life-giving possibilities that are, are, are not wish dreams, but are real. I mean, these are possibilities we've seen with our own eyes. I look, for example, back at my 11 years in a Quaker intentional community where everybody made the same amount of money, no matter what your role was. There, there was no distinction by rank or status or education or age. It was, an, it was an absolutely flat economic system of, of kind of radical equality. And I spent 11 of the most creative years of my life there, really un, beginning, you know, coming to understand how much nonsense there was in the notion of privilege, which I kind of grew up with as a white, straight male from a well-off family, and, and how by getting rid of the economic distinctions, it suddenly became possible to look at everyone as equally valuable, equally worthy, and to pay more attention to what they had to say and to how they lived their lives than to how much money they made or how much status their role in the organization carried carried with it. So I look around my neighborhood right now in Madison, that's not how we live. But but I spent 11 years living with real people in real space and time, living that way. And so I know that there are possibilities in a less 
predatory and consumptive model of economic life than the one we live at, at this moment in, in my town, where there are clearly the haves and the have-nots, and the have-nots are really, really suffering. So for me, the choice is, do I flip out on the side of harsh reality, which I call corrosive cynicism? And that means, okay, I see how the economic system works. I'm just going to game it to get to max it out for myself, let the devil take the hindmost. Or do I flip out on the side of, kind of, of, of a kind of unrealistic idealism, irrelevant idealism? Wouldn't it be nice if some floaty notion of how all of this can change tomorrow, and if it doesn't change tomorrow, then I get off the train. I did my graduate work at Berkeley in the 60s, and I saw a lot of people who thought all of this will change by the end of the decade. And and at the end of the decade, it hadn't changed. It had actually gotten worse with Vietnam raging. And so they got off the social change train <laughs> and, you know, devoted themselves to the acquisition of wealth. We have choices to make. And I think a lot of people these days are reflecting deeply and well on the choices they want to make at this critical time in American history. You know, there's a, uh, a book that I find myself surprisingly uh, how often I refer to the work of Peter Senge in a book called The Fifth Discipline. Mm -hmm. And in there, he uses the, the expression creative tension. Mm -hmm. and, and he makes a statement that I, I, I highlighted that says, the ability to stay in the discomfort of these gaps may be the most important quality of a leader. Yeah, And, and he, he goes on to talk about various strategies that we have for avoiding the gaps. He describes the three most popular strategies. One is to be so busy that we, that we forget that the gap exists. That's very popular today. The second, to get embroiled in the emotional aspects, to get so worked up about our, our anger and frustration. And the third is to lower the bar, mm -hmm. uh, to, to think as you, it's a bit of the cynical, I think, approach, right? This is this is impossible. So I think it's I think it's uh, interesting and important to to look at what the challenge is to being able to stay in these gaps and then to be able. So what I was hearing you say, one of your practices is nature and keep mm -hmm. coming back, you know, keep coming back to to nature. But you also seem to. I was hearing you as kind of. Uh, a perspective taking, right? The practice of perspective taking, which I think is a really undervalued practice, like seeing seeing things from a multitude of perspectives. I thank you for underscoring that. I do the best I can at that. I think it's really hard for any of us to escape our own perspective, but we we can at least be aware of the limitations of our perspective. We can read enough, we can talk to enough people who are unlike us in their life story to understand their perspective on things more fully. And with that information, we can begin to ask ourselves, what more do I need to know about how the world looks from another person's point of view? 
in order to check and correct the blinders that come with with my perspective. You know, I, I as I said earlier, I'm I'm an older, reasonably well-off, straight white male in America, and it took me quite a while in life to figure out that the way I looked at the world was not the way a lot of people looked at the world, because this world was made for me, not for you and me, but just for me. And I, I was the kind of person for whom this society was designed to work very, very well. I, I think one of the great struggles these days is there are a lot of white people, men and women, who, like me, are reasonably well off and not marginalized in any significant way, who are just having a very hard time realizing that their perspective is not the only perspective. But, but the life that comes, the three-dimensionality that comes, the color and texture that from adopting other people's lenses, as the old cliche goes, look at it from the other person's point of view. But do that multiple times from multiple perspectives, and life just gets more exciting. It gets less boring. It gets more engaging. But I think, above all, I was, I was reading a wonderful piece that Joanna Macy wrote, one of my heroes, about the Buddhist concept of the bardo, which I'm sure you know far better than I do. But the bardo is that gap between the times when, you know, things could either get better or they could get worse, and it, and the, it looks like the odds are they're going to get worse. And she says one of the big pieces of Buddhist advice is very simply, do not look away. Do not blink it. Do not turn aside. Take it in and engage it. Try to understand it. And then, you know, keep moving into it or at least sitting with it without evasion. So I think, you know, your comment about how hard it is for us to hold tension is well taken, and it takes us back to the old fight and flight syndrome. I, I wrote a book called Healing the Heart of Democracy, which drew heavily on this, on this, on the importance of creative tension holding. And one of the things I learned in, in researching that book was something I hadn't known before, I should have known probably, but for psychology, we talk a lot about stress and distress, but psychologists also have a word, eustress, E-U, stress, for, for stress that draws out the best in us. And when you think about the power of the fight and flight instinct and how it actually created so many cultural institutions that are designed to help us hold tension well. Language is one. You know, what, once we have language, we don't have to respond to a startle, something startling behind us by reaching out and clubbing them with whatever we got in our hand. We can inquire. We can say, what? What's going on here? Turn around and look and conduct inquiry into it. Art, art itself, is always driven by dynamic tension. And, and so the cultural inventions of art in every form 
are, I think, in many ways, an effort to help us transcend the impact of fight or flight, and on it, on it goes. So very fundamental human problem, but you know, let's not waste all those years of evolution by, by failing to take advantage of the openings we have into holding tension creatively. Yeah, it's interesting. Evolution and the bardo and tension. One of my favorite moments that I ever had in writing was I was this was a book I wrote many years ago about paradox. And the more as I was writing about paradox, at some point I, I found myself writing, I I'm I don't like paradox. I don't it's just it's uncomfortable. I want clarity. And 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 then what really surprised me, and this is one of the things that I love about writing, is being surprised when I wrote, well, perhaps paradox is actually more clear than clear. Mm-hmm. That that cl- what we usually think of as clarity is usually very one-sided, right? Mm-hmm. Whether it's too much looking at the world through rose-colored glasses or too much cynicism mm-hmm. or or you know, as gradual, do things change gradually or do they change suddenly? And, yeah. and, and I think, yeah, we're experiencing, as you were saying, the brilliance of how our, our government was initially designed to, as a way of being able to, to create tension and hold, hold tension. Right. It's what the tripartite division of government is all, all about in, in this or any other democracy. But it's so interesting, Mark, that you would mention the word paradox, because this morning, as I was preparing for our conversation by reconnecting with you in my my mind and heart, I I was remembering that my very first book, which is one I don't think about a whole lot anymore, 10 books ago, was called The Promise of Paradox. And it it was an exploration that began with, for me, with Thomas Merton, who was a big fan of paradox. He the people who know his marvelous journal, The Sign of Jonas, will probably remember Thomas Merton writing as an epigraph to that beautiful book, I am traveling toward my destiny in the belly of a paradox. (laughs) And when I read that, I thought, this is the guy for me, because that's how life feels. And had I not been on that onto that notion with Merton's help in my 30s, there's just so much of the rest of my life that I never could have made sense of. But paradox, as you say, is really clarifying. I think the alternative to paradox is the kind of simplification that actually obscures, distorts things. I don't, I don't remember who it was, maybe one of the Supreme Court justices or some great literary figure who said this very interesting thing, for the simplicity that lies this side of complexity, I would not give a fig. But for the simplicity that lies the other side of complexity, I would give my life. And and that's, you know, that's where paradox, I think, takes us. I, I have to, in my own mind, I have to keep coming back and reminding myself of at least a, a definition of paradox, which is something that appears impossible, but may in fact be true. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and, yeah, and you know, and, and, Neil, I love Niels Bohr, the Nobel Prize winning physicist. What he said about paradox, he said, the opposite of an ordinary fact is a lie. 
but the opposite of one great truth may be another great truth. It, it, it calls for discernment. He didn't say it always is another great truth, but it may be another great truth. You know, like, are we made for community? Absolutely. Are we made for solitude? Absolutely. It's like breathing in and breathing out. And if I were to say to you right now, you know what, I, I think I'm basically a breathing out kind of guy, so that's all I'm going to do for the rest of this interview. This interview wouldn't go on very long. Neither would I. Yeah. Well, thank you for bringing us back to the breath (laughs) (laughs) and the paradox, right? The paradox of, you know, breathing in and breathing out, right? And, and uh, this is one of my images of, you know, how we, how we exist and how we practice is that we, you know, we breathe in and, and the world appears in a certain way. And as we, as we somehow think it is and, and then we breathe out and let it, let it let it all go and and it's with each breath we make we kind of create the world again fresh and and yes. yeah even the the tension the tension that the gaps that exist in in our breath in our in our bodies mm-hmm. so i want to come back to what gives you hope parker well all of the above conversations like this give me hope you know, I, I just, I, I know from experience what human beings are capable of. And I'm not talking about merely about what happens among educated people who, who sometimes really don't take very good advantage of their education in terms of where the conversation goes or how the life gets lived. In my own family, I come from a line of skilled craftsmen with whom wonderful, very different kinds of conversations were possible, sometimes just watching them do their work and marveling at the intelligence in their hands, the, the kind of genius of, of crafting a beautiful object. In one case, it was a carpenter, and in the other case, a metal worker in my own family. Um, and I learned so much from those grandparents, you know, about the different modes of human intelligence and what's possible between human beings of of many, many sorts. And again, we talked earlier about perspective. I think the, the more forms of intelligence you can connect with conversationally in the broadest sense of that word, the, the more you're going to learn. Just observing my, my grandfather build a, a cabinet was a learning experience for me and and how often he he taught me not with words but just by saying watch what i do and and then making space for me to try it for myself without judgment or mockery or anything because obviously i was i wasn't going to do his quality of work i'm a big fan of what human beings are capable of, the human possibility, I guess is how, how I name it. Are we flawed? Are we greedy? Are we narrow-minded? Do we fall into the pits? Yeah, absolutely. That's part of the deal. But I think one of my operating notions is that wholeness, human wholeness, which is, I think, what a lot of us are striving for, human wholeness, not just for me, 
but for everyone, a sense of wholeness, a sense of being worthy, a sense of being seen and heard, which is what we have to offer up to as many people as possible. I, I think wholeness has nothing to do with perfection. Wholeness has to do with embracing the imperfections in your life along with the stuff you you get right. And being able to say at the end, and it's it's been very therapeutic or helpful for me to be able to say this as a person who's taken some very deep dives into clinical depression and the profound darkness of that experience for months at a time, it's been very helpful for me to be able to eventually to show up in the world saying, yeah, I'm all of the above, you know. I'm not only the hopeful books I write, but I'm also the hard experiences that gave rise to those books and the potholes I stepped into along the path that that somehow triggered or landed me in those hard experiences. So I, just, I think there's there's just there's so much for us to talk about. So so many. <laughs> things to talk about so little time <laughs> when you use the word wholeness I, I couldn't help but think of one of my favorite books of yours is called right a hidden a hidden wholeness with i thought both philosophical but also very practical instructions for how to design and create wisdom circles circles of wholeness and and finding wholeness through not through seeking solutions or advice giving or problem solving, but a paradoxical, a paradoxical view of um, a kind of allowing and perspective taking, but, but, but just with tremendous sense of creating safety, creating how we can create, how can we create safe spaces? And I think this is, a skill, right? When when it comes to racial issues, when it comes to democracy, when it comes to how we can skillfully find our way in managing and working toward solutions to some of these gaps, some of these yeah. gaps. Yeah. yeah. No. Absolutely. Thank you for mentioning that. And in raising a teenager or traveling through life with a partner, there these are skills, or I think, or understandings that are just valuable at so many levels. But you're absolutely right. What, what I've come to refer to as a circle of trust, which is what I write about in A Hidden Wholeness, is manifested in, in the work of an organization called the Center for Courage and Renewal, a nonprofit that I founded 25 years ago, which is just now celebrating its 25th anniversary, a very joyful event for all of us involved. And in the work of the Center for Courage and Renewal, we, we do retreats for people in many walks of life, but especially for people in the helping professions, teachers and clergy and nonprofit leaders and so forth and so on, and, and healthcare folk, especially physicians. We, we talk about our circles as a way of being alone together. Talk about a paradox. We talk about our circles as places where the, the primary conversation is not around the perimeter of the circle, 
but each person in the circle is supported in having a deepening conversation with him or herself. Uh, so there's a lot, as you rightly said, there's a lot of paradox in in these practices, and they are practices. They're very concrete practices. We we principles and practices is what we talk about when we begin our retreats, trying to create a culture that will sustain us in this in this goal of allowing each person to have a deepening conversation with him or herself. So the circles of trust that I've been in over the years, 25 years and more, are another source of hope for me because in those settings, I see people who are just like me with all the flaws and foibles along with, with the potentials start to discover that they, that they have an inner voice, that, that, that there is a truth that lives inside them. Some people call it soul, seeds call it the spark of the divine in every being. It can be called big self or true self. Merton called it true self. I think some Buddhists talk about big self, which is kind of also a non-self or a no-self, which is another great paradoxical notion. But I've seen people in these very trusting spaces begin to come in touch with the fact that they have what we, uh, what I'm a Quaker, we Quakers call the inner light. And that it, it, if you, once you start getting access to it, it illumines your path in, in many, many ways. So just, just knowing that it, it's a source of hope for me, just knowing that we are not captive to our roles or our images or the prejudices that the society lays upon us, the way it wants to define us either as terribly important or you hardly exist. We're not captive to any of that. I'm very, very struck with how most movements for social change have, have their originating spark in, in the lives of, of people who begin to understand this fundamental principle I, that I am worthy, I, I am not unworthy in, in the way that this racism or this sexism or misogyny wants to define me. And they resolve to live divided no more. They resolve to begin living from the inside out. People who, who, who kind of poo-poo inner work as somehow touchy-feely or whatever the latest phrase of dismissal is, really need to study the history of social movements. Because so far, uh, I've not been able to find one across the globe and across time that did not begin with people recovering that inner voice of truth, and finding ways to share it with each other, to, to build community around it, and to deploy it in the world as a force of social change. That's the story of the civil rights movement in this country, the black liberation movement, which was going on years before we even had a country. 
That's the story of the Velvet Revolution in Czechoslovakia. It's the story of Nelson Mandela in South Africa. It's the story of the women's movement around the globe. And on and on it goes. Well, Parker, you are beautifully articulating my hope for this conversation and, and, and any of these conversations that I'm, that I'm hosting, because uh, whether it's one person or you know, a million people, whoever, but who's ever listening, I believe, is having a conversation right now with themselves about this conversation. And my hope is that that leads people to find their own inner wholeness and their own inner light, which will support and enable people to take social action and to help create any, anything that we can all do to, to put our weight over on making this a more whole, whole world. Beautifully said, Mark. That's that's a mission. That's a mission worth pursuing. Yes. Well, I'm I'm maybe this can be part one, because I feel like we are just, you know, touching on on things, but anything you would like to say just as a way of completing our 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 circle here this morning. Well, I just want to say again, thank you. My gratitude to you for making me your conversation partner for this time together. And as always happens for me, conversation, a good conversation, this conversation with you, not only your questions for me, but your comments along the line, have awakened me to to certain parts of my past that I want to reclaim, certain ideas that I don't want to forget, practices that I want to continue with, and to possibilities, the human possibility in me that I want to try to live into. So thank you for all of that, Mark. Well, thank you. My heart is full, and I really appreciate this time together. Appreciate it a lot. Listen in each week for interviews, teachings, and guided meditations. You'll receive supportive tools for creating more meaningful work and mindfulness practices to develop yourself to influence your organization and to help change the world. Thank you for listening.